Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by our Bastiat Cruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. Dan, good morning to you. Welcome to Luck on Sunday. Thanks for having me again. Uh, not at all. Um, so much to talk about, as I say, later in the programme. But really, I just wanted to ease our way into this week by sort of taking stock, really, of, of you and, and your career and, and where it's at and, and how happy you are with nearly 800 winners in a very short space of time and 200 last year and the skeleton juggernaut rolling along. How are you feeling about life? Pretty positive, really, as you would probably expect. And um, I'm in a very lucky position obviously you're as lucky as you often work hard but you know it, there isn't really any uh, any reason why we've sort of got luckier than others at, uh, from the start of our careers we set out uh, to make it happen um, and it, it's it's been remarkable how it has kind of gone how we hoped it would and um, you know, sometimes you're better off born a little bit lucky, and I sometimes feel like that, if I'm honest with you. You know, nine and a half years with Paul, with all those great horses, and you know, my dad achieving what he'd achieved, and you know, we got to ride that roller coaster for a long while as mm. well. It's been re I've had a remarkable life, and I know I'm only a young fella in relative terms, but um, I'm very grateful to everyone who, who give us the chance to do it, really, and um, hopefully. You know, a good percentage of those think we rewarded them. You are obviously still infuriatingly young, as I was ascertaining a few moments ago. You are only 34. You have packed a hell of a lot into three and a half decades. Tell me a little bit about growing up as the son of Nick Skelton. Um, it was obviously your dad's your dad, mm. and your parents are your parents, and that's it. You, uh, first and foremost, he was the one who, you know, who told us off, and, you know, two young lads around the place. You know, it's not easy to be a father when you've got two spirited young fellas who love motorbikes and riding ponies and sport and everything else. And he had the challenges of every father, just like I'm having now with my daughter. But um, it's it's great, and I know he enjoyed us us being uh, around when we were growing up. And we just saw him as dad. We didn't see him as this global sporting icon. Because don't forget when when I was born in the eighties, like that was when. Show jumping was a, a mainstream mm. BBC sport. Um, I mean, I'd like to think it still is. Yeah, well, I, and I quite agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously revolutionised itself, the sport. But you know, that were the, those were the facts then. And um, you know, there was a lot of uh, you know there was a lot of things you had to deal with because people half expected you to be a great rider mm. because he was. Um, and I knew I was never going to live up to that expectation. Because uh, I just wasn't good enough. Harry was a, Harry was a very good rider, despite what you saw at Olympia this year. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you ride when you were? You I were did. Young? Yeah, yeah, a lot. I did a lot. Yeah, but I wasn't. I, I I can say this hand on heart. A lot of people say they got unlucky, didn't get the brakes and everything else. I just wasn't good enough. I was determined, 
very determined. I used to win quite a lot, but I wasn't skillful enough to produce horses to the next level mm. um, and, and get on. And and you know, that that that's the hardest thing in that sport. And that's why my dad's been so good. He's taken those horses like you know Top Gun, Arco. Um, and big star obviously from real young horses and made them into you know global stars and you know growing up it was it was a great grounding around horses and a man who was under a lot of mm. spotlight a lot of pressure and he absorbed it um you know it was an era perhaps where um you could be a little more insular there wasn't the social medias and you know, one thing dad will admit he isn't great with the press and the media and things like that and i think we've had to i've learned a lot from paul on that i mean that, that's that's a fact um, but growing up, it was it was just fantastic. Did you travel a lot together? Because the life of a show jump is pretty itinerant these days. Yeah, all over the place, and you know, saw a lot of different cultures, a lot of different ways of doing things. Um, you know, in in England, the show jumpers, you know, they had sort of maybe six or eight horses, and that was considered to be a lot. And then you had the yards in on the continent, like Paul Schockemollers, where there was hundreds, if not thousands, and. I got to see that before it became a thing. You know, he was like the Martin Pipe, Paul mm. Schockemola of, of the jumping world, and and you know people followed his lead, and I got to see and sort of experience these different types of manager, uh, you know, equine management theories, if you like, um, and I, I draw upon all of them in everyday life. Really, thinking, always thinking about how to improve your system and horses and. And you know your staff, and it's it's an ever evolving business. Because there was an orthodoxy that always said that you couldn't train more than a hundred horses. Say, yeah, you, know, you couldn't have them and, and do the job well. So you were looking at systems abroad where people were managing, as you say, thousands of horses at a time and doing it successfully. Exactly. And, and Dad, during his early years, obviously was was working for Edgars, and they were they were Team Everest at the time. Mm-hmm. It was the first commercial sponsorship in show jumping, I think. Um, this is Ted Edgar. Ted Edgar, Ted yeah. Edgar. And and they had um, they had about four or five riders there, and those riders, I think, I think three or four of them went on to get top international honours, be it Europeans, World, or Olympic medals. And if you've got people of that quality on your team, anything is possible. Any number is possible, um, and that's how I relate to it. I've got obviously my brother and his wife Bridget. I've got Tom Messenger. You know, you've got people that you don't see all the time. Nick Pierce, who we're going to talk about later, who trains Don Poli, mm. point to pointing. They're all capable in their own right. Sam Davis Thomas, who's another one of my assistants, had you know tons of winners, point to pointing. These are intelligent managers who, you know, in a different on a, with a different set of cards, would be very good trainers in their own right. And I can rely on them to do the right thing every day. And if, you, if you've got the people in place to maintain the system that you know works, then any number's possible. Was it always going to be racing for you? When, once I went to ditch it and, and committed to that, definitely. As long as, as long as people wanted me, as long as horses came our way, then it was always going to be that. But why did you end up at Paul Nichols in the first place? It's a funny story, actually, because um, I had a point-to-pointer... Uh, my, my first point-to-pointer was a horse called Mick the Cutaway. I think it was Ruby's first winner under rules, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I had him as an older horse, and I won with him. And um, he actually went to Heather Dalton's. I bought him from Heather Dalton's, and I went away on holiday 
just before he had his first run um, and about a fortnight, three weeks before he had his first run and Heather had him back and Heather got him fit and I thought I'd got him fit but looking back on it I know that I didn't and actually he won first time and then deteriorated because I didn't keep him fit enough um, and it was a bit of a learning curve you know I expected things to get better not deteriorate and I'm thinking what's going on here this isn't this isn't right um, John Hales then sent me a point to pointer because uh, he owned Arco at the time with, uh-huh. with dad and um, said if we're going to do this we better learn how to do it properly so we were Paul had his owner's day and John Hale said I'll give you a lift down to Ditchit um, when we go down for owner's day and then um, spend a fortnight down there or something and you might learn something and off we went. And, and you never came home? No, and then uh, Paul actually, Paul and Dad had each other's numbers and, you know, because obviously Dad used to go racing a bit with John and um, Paul texted Dad actually when I got back and said, um, great to have Dan down. Um, if if he ever wants a job, there's always one for him. And I, I remember we were in the kitchen at home and I said, said to Dad, well, text him back, say, what sort of job is this? And he says, well, we haven't got one for him, but we'll make one. <laughs> so I rang him up and said, what are you thinking? And he said, well, we haven't got a pupil assistant, but we're getting to the numbers now where I can warrant having one of those. Um, and I went down there and I just grafted. I just, I just worked. I just, whatever needed doing, I did it. There was never a moment. And I did that for nine and a half years. Once a month, I'd come in, slam the door, say to Grace, that's it, I've had enough. Ring up Dad, you know, coming back, put some fresh sheets on my bed. And he'd say, oh, all right, yeah, fine. And he'd ring me the next morning, all right. Yeah, yeah, I'm busy on second lot. Ring you later. <laughs> yeah, but that's life, you know. And, and it was in a competitive environment at Paul's. So you always, you know, every day was intense. And every day was an opportunity to win more, do better. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes Paul's frustrations boiled over. Um, and, you know, on the way home in the car, sometimes we'd discuss all sorts and, yeah, sometimes I think oh, this is too much. I'd get a, I'd get an earful for for nothing in particular because he needed to vent. But now I do it myself. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can see that. You know, everybody has a pressure valve. Everybody has a pressure valve. It's it's how they release it, who they release it to. And actually, there's some. I'm still very good friends with Paul, and hope I always will be. But I, I know for a certain period that I worked there, he. He knew, and actually the whole time I was there, he knew he could vent at me, and I was 100% committed to him. Like There was no doubt that you know, I was going to turn the towel in and, and off I went. You know, I might get frustrated with it, but he knew that I was as committed to winning as he was. Um, although it wasn't my name on the door, I wanted to prove myself. And, and prove yourself you did, and you were there at a golden time with some, some truly wonderful horses. I think you started just about the same week that Corto Star arrived. Didn't yeah, you? The, um, him and Denman walked into the yard, and, um, you know, it was, it was remarkable, really. They just, how they all came along at once, the masterminded, you know, Neptune Collange, uh, Twist Magic, and then there was, like, we went through a stage of, I remember it was, at the time it was, and it was Andy Stewart actually mm. who would buy these three-figure, like nowadays they're actually they're relatively cheap. He's buying these three-figure French horses, um, and we were just going out and winning that Grade One novice chase, that Grade Two novice chase, that Grade One novice chase, and like it was just like the amount of horses that we had that sort of bubbled under the surface mm. that in any other yard would have 
you know, set the world alight. Um, and that was what was great, actually. When we were there, Andy was always struggling for that festival winner, and then Cecil Halo come along, and then Big Bucks come along, and it was all all right. And I remember Paul being particularly stressed about not being able to get Andy that, fe- that first festival winner. And you got there in the end, and he had a, an amazing collection of owners as well as, as horses. But one of his great skills over time has been managing quite big, larger-than-life, wealthy characters, and he's done it very effectively. Like, he, he'd ne- he should never write the book because he should never give away all the secrets because it's probably <laughs> his biggest asset. But, like, nobody... You know, I, got, I, got, I'm, I was well-informed when I started this job, but there's always a lot of things you don't know, you know. Alex Ferguson said to Paul, "Teach him all he knows, not all you know." <laughs> and I'm very aware that that is the case. Um, and the way he handles the owners and the situations, and you know, he isn't afraid. And I've I've brought that from him and from a dad to go right. This is the line. This is where I've got to sit. Um, and these are the reasons for me doing it. And everybody can see it. And he's, I think his openness with the press and, and, and his owners and, and the situation sometimes landed him in hot water. You know, sometimes he's had to comment on things that he sometimes felt he shouldn't. We all have to do that. But he just has confidence that if it's not somebody's, you know, if he's upsetting somebody today, tomorrow it will be a different scenario. And that's life. You, know, you can't win every time. You know, when Ruby was around, you... Ruby can only ride one horse in a race. And it's a very difficult job to manage, but somehow he did and he still does. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. Welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Very pleased to say that Dan Skelton is still with me after a fascinating half hour, which could have gone on. I've had to bring in David Yates, though, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, because it has been the newsiest of newsweeks, hasn't it, Dave? Yeah, it's been pretty busy uh, with uh, Out Your Gate, Protectorat, and um, <laughs> a few other things flying around as well. So, yeah, it's been lots to, lots to chew over this week. Should we chew over the another winner given to you by the, the, the appeals board? at the British Horse Racing Authority this week, Protect Rat. You seemed very bullish and confident you were going to get this turned over, and you did. Uh, when we passed the post in front, we just felt that, yes, Harry came across, but there wasn't really any... We didn't feel there was enough interference to say that you know, we, 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 caused, uh, we caused the other horse not to win. Um, and that's how it's ended, that's how it's ended up. And it... It's a, it is a bit unsatisfactory. I'm sure you're going to ask me some more questions. It is a bit of an unsatisfactory ending to it. But um, at the end of the day, we felt the horse we felt the horse won on merit on the day, and and the, the appeals board did. And the system worked for you. Well, there you. That's I think when you actually get to the end of whatever we're going to discuss about this, it does say that the independent appeals board you can have faith in it. It does work because. We've had a fair hearing, um, and by the way, if it had gone the other way, it was a fair hearing. Do mm. you know what I mean? It was, it, it was a fair hearing, um, and yeah, it, 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 it's sport, isn't it? I mean, I'm in a minority of one thinking that they were quite justified to throw you out in the first place, but that's sort of neither here nor there now. It's academic, as you say. Uh, it's an opinion. 
Mm. And I think the thing is with uh, race day stewarding, race day decisions, is you've got to remember that it is it is an opinion. There isn't that rules book doesn't have every single example of uh, what can happen in a racing situation. So the stewards on the day have to say. Okay, our opinion mm, is on the balance of probability. Exactly, it's not; it can never be beyond reasonable doubt. Ex- exactly. So that's the problem that they face on the day: is that it's an opinion, and opinions are always challenging, you know, challengeable. Um, and if you know, if more, if you feel that you've got a better than fifty percent chance of, of winning an appeal, you're going to go and do it. Uh, one thing I will say is the the court of public opinion. I felt. <laughs> Weighed strongly on our oh, massively, side, massively, massively, um, and that gave us a bit more confidence. But the, the one thing to say about it all is that it's just an unsatisfactory conclusion because it's Cheltenham and you've had a winner and your owners celebrate. Then the other owners celebrate, and now all of a sudden they're not celebrating, and it's it's scrappy, isn't it? You don't it, you don't want it to happen like this, but. Now and again, it does. Now, apparently, allegedly, it ruined your holiday to Disney. It didn't really it ruin. It definitely did It not. didn't ruin your holiday <laughs> to Disney. It hasn't now. Yeah. Now, David, the glasses were going on and off during that brief exchange with Dan there. Um, well, those of us who were driving on New Year's Eve and therefore not drinking wondered whether the stewards might have overdone it on New Year's Eve because I thought it was a very eccentric decision. Uh, I thought that... Uh, Protectorat was clear of Imperial Alcazar. I'll stop doing that now. Um, and although marginally clear, being clear surely has the right mm. to roam anywhere he may please on the race course. I didn't think caused any interference. It's funny that when you talk to uh, particularly owners, because a lot, some owners don't under, understand the sport in as much depth as trainers, jockeys some journalists um, John Hale said it was the strangest decision he'd ever seen and sometimes mm. when you speak to owners you think well nah come on that's a bit that's a bit strong I thought it was I thought it was a very strange decision did you I, I, say. I yeah. didn't think it was that strange to be honest when I saw it first off I mean I wouldn't have had a problem had they left it where it was at all and I, I don't really have a problem that they, the appeals board have come to the conclusion they have it was just that if they decided that there was interference then by the, the way the rules are written I felt there was a reasonable case to, to throw Protectorat out. It's a question of whether you believed there was what you could class as interference in the first yeah, instance. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see that, that. And that, I think, is where the, the yeah, argument is. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, I think the appeals thing is a strange thing, because in law you, you appeal uh, because there's a, there's a... Not because you disagree with the decision, but because it's faulty. Mm. And obviously in racing you don't do that, and I think that's a bit weird, but, you know... It was always thus, I think. Yeah, because the actual race day stewards did not come in for much censure from the from the appeals board. Just on a separate point, a slightly separate point, Dan, because the BHA have had a challenging week, and we're going to talk about a number of those challenges, Robbie Downey and uh, one or two other things, the, the Alti Orb situation later in the programme, quite a lot of people have sought to conflate all these as a, sort of examples of widespread incompetence or, or bad practice. In this case, would you agree that there's no real incompetence here? No, there's not. And like I said, it's an opinion. On, on day, the opinion of the stewards was Imperial Alcazar was inconvenienced and would have won. Mm. And if there wasn't an appeals board, I would have felt very, I'd have felt very hard done by. The fact that I got an, I got an appeal and we got to get it heard 
was was a very important, and then b it went our way was was great for us. But the the regulate the regulator question that you're asking, mm. um, I think will continue to be fanned. The flames will continue to be fanned until we stop um, uh, stop the necessity for opinion. At the end of the day, they're the regulators. If you're mm-hmm. playing a football match and you've got two teams, there's a 84th minute penalty, the game finishes 1-0 because of the penalty, the first person you do not get as they come off the pitch is the umpire. The umpire has a shower, gets in the car and goes home. I believe that a good administrator is heard, not seen, and does things behind the scenes that make the ship run smoothly. Far too often recently, I think we've been asking stewards and um, BHA representatives, what's your thoughts? Why did that happen? What's going on? Well, the reports for stewarding and decisions are published. That's their wait for the published. There you go. That's the decision. Um, I was not happy with what the steward at Sandown said when the Sandown 7 were banned um, because he said they saw the flag and... Um, they ignored it. Mm. And I said immediately afterwards on this channel, that's an opinion. They did not see the flag. I happened to know they didn't see the flag because I went and asked them all, and they all said to me, we didn't see the flag. Um, But immediately he said they've seen the flag. So that's added flames to, uh, to the situation that wasn't necessary. And I think that this can be quelled a little by letting the administrators administrate and letting the players opinionate. And if everyone lets, them, lets each other do their job, I think you'll find there's a lot more harmony. David? The, I mean, I agree with much of that, Dan. And, and I, I certainly, you know, being of a certain age, 51, where, uh, you, you know, in the old days, um, cricket umpires, football referees... You know, the the good ones you just didn't notice. We didn't have, you know, uh, referees with newspaper columns and those who tried to make names for themselves by, you know, brandishing cards or, you know, the old Billy Bowden thing of uh, indicating a six in a certain way. They weren't personalities. They were just officials. Uh, even the linesmen were just Mr. Skelton of, you know, Loughborough or whatever it might be. However, there is also the fact that... Uh, there's a in the case of the the Sandown Seven, there are half a dozen journalists waiting outside the steward's door, uh, waiting for Chris Rutter to speak, and mm. he feels. And, and in this in the the current era, there is a uh, a, a need for transparency. We we will get referees being interviewed after Premier League games in the short to medium term, I'm sure. So I, I agree with what you say to a point, but I think that in the, in the, the current era there is that uh, requirement. We, we, do, we, don't, we don't go and ask Chris Rutter what he thinks just to be mischievous. We do it because we, we think that our readers, you know, they, oh, they want sure. an explanation yeah. at, at that time rather than one that's published on, on Tuesday. I, I, I have quite a good relationship with the press, and I know, Very good, yeah. and I know when you're being mischievous, 
because you have a mischievous look on your face. <laughs> You're not a great poker player, my friend. Um, and a lot Dave's of, always got a mischievous uh, look on his face. And, and it can, you know, and a lot of it is done with light heart. But everybody knew that situation at Sandown was particularly charged. There was yes. no laughing and joking there. No, there wasn't. Um, and the fact of the matter is, there's a rule book that says when a flag comes out, the race has to stop, and if you don't stop, you get ten days. I'm, and that was all that the I'm steward gonna, needed to I'm say. Gonna, I'm going to... Go Just on. one very one quick last thing. thing. I, I've I, got to move I, on. Much as <laughs> I don't mind misquoting uh, people through my professional life, a joke. Uh, I think what Chris Rutter said was, if they didn't see a flag, why did they go around the fence? I think that's what he said, rather than saying they definitely saw the flag. I, I want to move on from the Sandown sure. Seven because I feel <laughs> I feel we've got so much to get on on point this week, including all of the action from yesterday and Warwick, where Dan was well represented. He couldn't win the classic chase, well though his horse ran. Uh, Kimberlite Candy eventually emerged on top in the silks of J.P. McManus for Tom Lacey and Richie McLennan. Just talk us through the race from your Captain Chaos perspective, first of all, Dan. Um, well, Captain Chaos has two ways of running, um, the way we'd like him to and the way he sometimes wants to. So he nearly got it all right yesterday. Yeah, and um, he's tried hard yesterday, and, and he's actually been second in four top-class handicap chases. Um, and he deserves a big one, and his owners love him. Um, and I just hope one day he just gets his, his, his day in the sun. And for a minute, it looked here like, yeah, we could just outstay. And then Kim Black Candy's almost come back on the bridle to a degree, and he scooted away in the end and looked like a Grand National horse, in my opinion. So you think he is the right type of horse for the Grand National, the winner? Yeah, I do. Look at him. I mean, that, that, the horse in second, is he's staying. He doesn't get caught for second. He, he, he leaves the gap to the third. Look at this. I mean, he's going away well. This is the first time I've seen this one since for, the race. One, one for Arthur-esque. One for Arthur-esque, one for Arthur. Won the classic chase, went on to win the Grand National itself. That is, I'm sure, something that Tom Lacey is hoping for. But first of all, Tom Lacey, good morning. Congratulations. How's Kimberlite Candy today? Oh, good morning. He's, he's really well. He's trotted up sound and ate up, and he's now out in the field covered in mud. That's great to know, and I would imagine you're hard to hear uh, Dan's very complimentary thoughts, saying that his horse he didn't think was stopping, and your horse was only going further and further away. Is he always a horse, Tom, that you've thought had limitless, bottomless reserves of stamina? Uh, not really, to be truthful. You know, he has sort of stopped in previous runs, but he's just really come of age this time. Everything's clicked. His homework's so much better. You know, he's finishing his work off. Um, whereas before he was always, you just you just felt you were emptying at the end of pieces of work. But you know, this year he's he's just strengthened up for another summer under his belt, and I think he's probably the, the finished article now. As you say, he's been a work in progress. I mean, you, you clearly held him in quite high regard as a young horse. I remember you putting him in a, in a graded novice hurdle at Cheltenham and saying, "Well, if it doesn't work, I still know I've got a, a nice horse on my hands." Have there ever been times when he's he's really frustrated you? Uh, not particularly. I mean, when he won his four-year-old point-to-point at Woodford, he was, you know, he was unbelievably backward, and we knew he was a good horse to do that because he did that on sheer ability alone. You know, he's physically very immature and weak. Um, so we've always known it was in there. It's just a case of giving him the time to mature and, and come to himself. Is he the sort of horse that you can you could now get a good clear run with, and, and he can run with with more regularity, or will you now try and save him just for entry? No, absolutely, we'll, we'll save him. Now his his best runs have always been when he's been fresh. And had a chat with Frank Berry on the way home last night, and our primary focus is is entry. 
everybody likes training winners in the in the green and gold silks. How much of a how much of a thrill did it give you? Oh, it's a huge thrill. I mean, when you know when prolific owners like J.P. McManus and his family send you a horse, it's um, it's extremely flattering, and it's you know it sends a, a very positive message out to other potential owners. If, you know, owners such as JP are willing to put their, their trust and faith in you. It's been a little while since we've we've caught up on the show. Are you are you pretty happy with the way the season's gone as a whole? Um, it's, yeah, it's not. It's been you know, some days are better than others. We've you know we've we've got some really nice young horses. A lot of young horses again. Um, so we won't have you know the number of runners that we we probably previously had. Um, there's a couple of lovely young horses to run in the spring. Otherwise, we're just steady away with the, the handicappers and one or two, hopefully, potential stars. And now, presumably, the whole yard are given a real lift with the idea that you've got a, a genuine entry contender on your hands. Absolutely. You know, there's a good team of staff here. There's four lads that can train in their own right. And... Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. But as Dave was saying and hinted at a few moments ago, really everybody's attentions were on the quotes that Nicky Henderson gave yesterday at Kempton Park. And uh, this is what he had to say about the eventual scratching of Altior from the Silviniaco Conti chase. It is done and dusted. The horse is fine. As you know, um, I, I just would like to say one thing that I, don't, I think for a lot of things that have been said and a lot of things that have been written, um, probably without all the information they should have had before they made judgments. I'd only like to say that actually on the Tuesday morning, when I and Nico looked at him and took a view that he just didn't look like we wanted to do, we uh, decided not to do what I was going to do with him that morning. And there was a, very early on, there was a rumour. Now, the first thing I did, and nobody seems to have mentioned it, and the BHA certainly haven't mentioned it, the first thing I did, and it was about quarter to nine, five to nine, whatever it was, on that Tuesday morning, I rang the BHA to tell them. To tell them that... that I'm there not was happy some... with the horse right. and there is a rumour. Well, and there was some market so, Most people assumed that there wasn't anything until I made an announcement at 12 o'clock. The BHA were well aware I told them before nine o'clock that morning. That has never been mentioned. So you set the ball rolling in the first Correct. And then there was some unusual... But why couldn't the BHA have actually mentioned that in all these <laughs> statements that have been coming out of there? So, Nicky, then there was some, some unusual market activity, I guess, and, and the horse drifted with, with one or two firms. Do you then speak to all your staff and say, look, you, you sometimes are access to privileged information. Just make sure you know that that information is privileged did. and it doesn't get I out. did indeed. Did you? And then I, but the only th problem I had at the time was getting hold of the owners. Yeah. I can't make a public statement until I've spoken to the owner. That's why I rang the BHA. And what was the situation with them telling you that you needed to scratch the horse and then... Because if you say you are not going to run, they actually immediately, they, they, then there is a requirement that you scratch the horse. I said, well, look, we're still in the race. I reserve my judgment. And we thought he looked better the next day. And the, a veterinary officer came to see him who agreed that he looked great, sound, happy. 
Fine. To be honest with you, the only good bit of news is that on that ground out there today, the chances are I wouldn't have run him. So, thank goodness. Well, I just took a view then. Uh, John O'Spence was with me and we discussed the whole thing. We've discussed the whole scenario of how we're going to take this forward and I hope it'll be satisfactory for everybody because it needs sorting. I don't disagree with that. Um, but I would have said that at, th at that moment I was inclined to... The next day he looked better. The vet came to look at him. My vet looked at him and said, I don't know what you're worried about. Um, uh, 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 Mr Potts from the BHA came down, top man, 7 o'clock in the morning. The horse looks great. I mean, I love the way they then put horse scratched after BHA vet visits horse. Well, that insinuates that it was taken out because of the BHA vet. It wasn't. He said the horse looked great. So he, so he could conceivably have run today, I were it to not for all today. that previous shamozzle. But, it was, but because of the whole shamozzle, I, I spoke to Pat Pugh and I said, under the circumstances, I just say, listen, let's forget it. So if you're going to revisit your communications, and particularly in light of the Unibet Yard sponsorship, how are, you going to, how are you going to do things differently? These announcements will be made through the PA when it comes down to, you know, delicate situations. So market-sensitive information. Exactly. And that's, you know, we'll continue with, you know, and, you know, I've had a very good relationship with Unibet. They're great guys. They're great sponsors of racing huge sponsors and supporters of national hunt racing and um, you know we want to appreciate them and I don't see why we shouldn't um, but as I said we'll um, these sort of issues will be dealt with through the press association um, but I will also continue to do our <laughs> you know day-to-day -day stuff um, that is of no not of no significance, but of... No, no sensitivity. Sensitivity. Yeah. We'll, we'll continue to work with Unibet, and as I say, congratulate. I mean, you know, a lot of other trainers do the same thing, and a lot of other who are connected to bookmakers, and we have to appreciate these bookmakers are putting a lot of money into racing. So we want to support them as well. OK, that was Nicky Henderson talking to me yesterday at Kempton Park about what has now become known as Altior Gate. The BHA have responded to Nicky's thoughts, and this is what they had to say. We can confirm that Mr Henderson contacted us on Tuesday morning. It would not be standard practice for the BHA to proactively make public the details of confidential conversations with a trainer, particularly if those conversations related to the potential use of inside information. His call was to let us know that he was concerned about why the horse was drifting in the market, despite no decision having been made about his participation. The BHA was in regular contact with Mr Henderson from Tuesday morning onwards in relation to this, but the communication of a horse's running plans is a matter for the trainer. They go on. This, however, is an entirely separate issue to our statement on Wednesday evening, which was instead related to the fact that Mr Henderson had not yet scratched the horse, despite having said on Tuesday that it was not going to run and was designed to keep the racing and betting public up to date. Now, self-evidently, this is complicated further by the fact that thus up, up to yesterday, when Nicky announced his change of policy, news of this nature was being disseminated through his Unibet blog, and there are guidelines for betting organisations who've entered into a commercial arrangement with jockeys and trainers. And there's a large section entitled Market Sensitive Information. And for high-profile horses, those running in graded races, etc., where there's known to be anti-post betting market, the appropriateness of market-sensitive information should be strongly considered before it is first made available to the public through media hosted by the betting operator 
or its representatives, and there are quite clear guidelines on that. So I think everybody would agree that it's a sensible change of policy from seven barrows to now start disseminating such market-sensitive information through the PA, which is a rather more traditional means of doing so. Dan Skelton, one of my guests, has a similar deal with Ladbrokes. You've spoken about this on yesterday morning's opening show on ITV, and you felt very comfortable with the, with the bookmaker deals, provided that information is sent out uh, correctly. What did you make of Nikki's comments there and the response thereafter from the BHA? Well, obviously, yesterday morning, before we knew Nikki's comments and subsequent BHA comments, um, it just all felt uh, badly managed. It felt like uh, a, not split second, but a quick decision from, I think it was a communication between jockey and trainer, Nico and and Nicky, about Altior, maybe he's, maybe he's not, maybe we're not going to run him, we could do, he could be better. It felt like that information had got out. Now, that's a totally different mm. discussion on how it has, but when you listen to Nicky's comments, you can, since yesterday when he spoke to you, you can only presume that that information has got out somehow. Mm. Um, and it's terribly unfortunate that it has because it has created this problem. I don't think Nicky's guilty of anything at all. I just think it's an unfortunate situation that's been very badly managed. Um, but I concur with what Nikki says about the bookmaker sponsorship my, I can only talk from a, from a personal perspective, my relationship with Ladbrokes is pristine, it's simple I do uh, a weekly blog which I do a voice recording, I send to the relevant um, send to the relevant mm. place, uh, I then get to check it which is also in the guidelines you check your publications before they're sent out um, and off, off we go and it's Bookmaking and racing is intrinsically linked, and I feel that this whole situation um, is 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 just an opportunity for people who don't who think that there's something uh, within those uh, relationships that there isn't. It just gives them wood to chuck on the fire and say, "Well, there you go. They shouldn't be sponsored." But it's not. That isn't the case. We should be better educating these people who feel that that's the case. Yeah, in the in the BHA guidelines, it says three perception. Be mindful of perception at all times. Whilst whatever content appears on media hosted by a betting operator or through a representative may be considered to be perfectly appropriate and within the rules of racing, do consider how it might be perceived by the betting public and other stakeholders. And then the ball is back in your court. It is it, absolutely it is. But you've got to take into consideration um, personal traits. Nicky wears his heart on his sleeve, and especially about Altior. He's very emotional. He's a very emotional trainer. We all know how Nicky is, and, and that's one of his endearing, most endearing qualities. And he has got that horse first. He's got the owner second. And Nicky hasn't panicked because he's not a panicker, but he's got everything going on. And who do, where, who do I tell first? What do I do? I, I can see how it's mm. happened. It's terribly unfortunate that it has. And by the way, it's only because it's Altior and, a, um, uh, and an anti-post race that we've got to this position. I know that's an irrelevant statement to a degree because it would only ever be in that case, but it just highlights the whole situation. Uh, isn't the situation here, Dave, that the BHA and Nicky Henderson, well, the relationship has not just got any better in the last 16 hours, has it, at all? Because Nicky's fired a, a shot yesterday yeah. at Kempton and they fired a few back. Uh, okay. I mean, I'd like to deal with the, the what I think is the important point first, rather than the the, the relationship between Nicky Henson and the BHA, and that is that 
Personally, I'm not crazy about bookmaker sponsorships. It wouldn't happen in Hong Kong. It wouldn't happen in Japan. But I don't think that genie is going to go back in the bottle. But there is a difference between uh, opinion on of, of Dan mm. on race day runners, uh, first day at school, the owner's been very patient, the handicap has been harsh, but I think he'll run well, and the and, and, and breaking news of, say, a change of plan or an injury, which then has an immediate and a very heavy impact on betting. On betting. Yeah. So were I to... Uh, the BHA now, I, I would say, it, it, to what extent those guidelines need redrawing, because they do mention price-sensitive uh, information, that the first call should be to the press association to say, right, so-and-so is not well, he is a doubtful runner, not necessarily a non-runner, but a doubtful runner, etc. That's very important, because right? that, that was Nicky's mistake. Well, that, it might be Nicky's mistake. If, it's or a, if there's a mistake that's been made, Nicky said he's not going to run. What, what Nicky wished he'd have said is, I, we're going to see. We're going to see. Okay, there's a, there's a. Uh, and this is the excuse BHA, me of having this, a chip on my shoulder, but if you are dealing with PR people, you deal with a journalist. You deal with John Lees, who is a who is a hugely respected and experienced journalist. And if you say, right, don't think this is going to run, John will say, well isn't or unlikely, what should we say? 50-50, 60-40, 99-1? And mm. you'll say, right, OK. Now, one of the issues that journalists have with these bookies' blogs is that a lot of the time they're not done with journalists and that sometimes someone of John Lee's ability and experience would ask a question maybe that others don't. But to return to my original rant, bookmakers should have no place in the chain when it comes to information that influences betting odds. Mm. It's fine the race day stuff. They will someone wanting to know uh, what you think about your horse's chance that day goes to a Labrook site. Labrook's pay money into into that contract because they think and it's probably proven that a certain number of people will remain on that site to have a bet. I'm not crazy about that. Personally, I, I'm in full agreement with Rafe Beckett. I don't think those um, those relationships should exist. But they do, And I, but I think that the most important thing is that when it comes to issues like this, especially with a, a high-profile horse, that it's the press association, not the Mirror, not the Sun, not the Mail or anybody else, but the press association that gets the call and they can disseminate that information very quickly and avoid situations like this. In this own situation, I'll be as quick as I can. Um, for, You've for, got some time. For the furore that we've had, I think actually most individuals and organisations here have done pretty much everything right, or most things right. Nicky Henderson rang the BHA at 8.45. He's perfectly entitled, I'm sure you would agree, not to publish until he's spoke to, spoken to the owner. If I had a high-profile horse and I were driving along in my car and I heard on the radio that my horse was going to uh, win, uh, miss a big race and I didn't know about it, I wouldn't be very pleased. So I think he's perfectly entitled to do that. Um, the BHA, what seemed heavy-handed on Wednesday evening, asking him or, or telling him, saying he must be more, uh, he must publicly clarify his plans, that was in response to the fact that Altior hadn't been scratched. And believe me, there would have been an absolute meltdown if a horse mm. that was out was then in. back in. Uh, that, that would have, that, the, it, it really would have hit the fan. Uh, 
if, if that had happened. I, I don't see why the BHA wouldn't can't say in a statement we were contacted by. Uh, the trainer, I think that's a, uh, on Nicky Henson's. Uh, in in his case, I think that's a that's a fair thing to observe. I don't see why they wouldn't have said that. Um, but uh, so I think that 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 generally uh, most most things have been observed. Of course, I mean, the, the interesting thing, or the, the biggest irony, I suppose, was that all the backers have top notch from five to one <laughs> yeah. into four to six <laughs> thought they were going to strike it lucky, but. <laughs> Ultimately, they've they've that's hit racing. something of a hot spot. Haven't exactly, they? that's right. You know, yeah. that, and that, that's the you know the, the the smile at the end of it, isn't it? Uh, it's it's an unfortunate situation. I think Nicky had his time again as a trainer. I think he'd have said, "Hang on, we might not run." And that one word, he will not run on yeah. Tuesday, is what caused the problem. If he'd have said, "We might not run," there you go. He might not run. He could have made his decision later on in the week, um, and, and that would have been it. But it's. I don't feel it has been blown out of proportion because it does highlight a significant, not flaw in the system, because the, the guidelines are extremely concise. But I think it serves to remind us all what is expected. Um, and Rafe Beckett, in his opinion about bookmakers not being able to sponsor trainers, wholeheartedly disagree with. Um, I'm obviously one side of the fence and he's the other. Mm. But I have a great relationship and I, I wouldn't want to be without them. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. Uh, welcome back. You're watching Luck on Sunday. Now, on the 19th of June last year, 2019, Robbie Downey, the rider's life, changed because he went to take a ride in France at Lyon d'Angers and he was selected for random urine testing. Now, on the 30th of July, so five weeks later, uh, France Gallo informed Robbie that he tested positive for metabolites of cocaine. Now, that was only the beginning of a lengthy and very painful saga for the rider who started his career in his native island, did extremely well, and was basing himself in the north of England to good effect. Brought a halt to that, and he's joined me now to tell you his story and how things might have worked out very differently, but for the BHA this week, reciprocating officially France Gallo's ban. As I say, that tells but half the story. Robbie, uh, good morning and thank you for joining us here on Luck on Sunday. Good morning, Nick, and thanks for having me. Not at all. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us. So first things first, did you take cocaine? No, never took cocaine. Um, I don't know how it got into my system. Never associated with anybody who does take cocaine. Um, and I just I couldn't believe when, when, uh, when the French result came back. It came back to uh, Eddie Lynham's yard in Dunshockland, my, uh, my former boss. And... Um, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. Um, so, anyway, when I got the result, I rang my agent at the time, who was Laura Way, and she then gave me Paul Struthers' number. Mm -hmm. So I rang Paul and told him what had happened, told him I went to France, did a urine sample, um, couldn't believe it was there, and Paul said to me, he said, look, Robbie, he said, he said, if you have taken it, he said, just own up to it. He said, if you have taken it, own up to it, because it's going to be, uh, it's going to cost you a lot of money, he said it's uh, it's going to be a lengthy procedure, and he says just not worth it. He says you will you will uh, you will find out in the hair test whether you've taken it or not. I said Paul, haven't taken it. He said okay, that's perfect. Um, he said go and get a hair test done. So <clears throat> I went to uh, Alpha Bio Labs in Liverpool, um, booked myself in to get a hair test. 
the result came back um, I think just over a week later mm -hmm. um, came back completely negative for cocaine and all of its metabolites so I then rang Paul told him about this he informed Jerry Hill the doctor um, Jerry Hill then uh, cleared me to write cleared me to ride in England and um, the BHA cleared me to ride in England off the evidence of the uh, negative hair test. So I got in touch then with a French jockey's agent, Herve Nagar, who, um, who was brilliant, brilliant throughout the whole process because he could speak French, he could translate what the French emails were and you know he, he was just very good uh, that way and he said to me, look Rob, he said, uh, he said France Gallop, they won't they won't listen to uh, you know they won't uh, they won't take into consideration an English hair test he says you'll have to come to France and do one so I said yeah perfect I said absolutely no worries went to France um, went to some lab over there um, obviously paid for the two hair samples myself um, that sample came back completely negative as well over a five month period it was a five and a six month period I had so there was no traces of cocaine, n no no metabolites found, and um, so we had the appeal in France. And um, what I thought going o going in going over for the appeal was what the impression I was getting was I was going to lose in France. Um, there was no point in bringing legal representation because Rab Havlin had spent thousands over there and you it know it was it was just you know and and how similar were the two cases um i'm not sure on rab's case but paul told me i had a, a lot stronger of a case mm -hmm. um obviously uh, rab's case was quite similar um and i think the professional jockeys association they learned a lot from rab's case and they learned you know rab spent a lot of money in france and um, it just it just came to you know I mean it was it was just it was money wasted really, and that's what I was informed when I went to France. Um, I went there, I went there thinking, you know I went there. I was told, France, you you don't really have a chance with France. He says, the best thing to do is let England sort it out. England knew we were going to we were going to ask for non reciprocation, mm -hmm. um, even before. Before the the uh, the French gave me the ban, they knew that we were all, if if they did ban me that we were going to ask England not to reciprocate at the BHA, and um, went to France with the two hair tests. Um, obviously, asked them for my levels to be tested in my B sample. Mm -hmm. um, France never gave me my levels for the B sample. They um, they denied. They, the BHA asked them for the levels. Uh, the professional jockeys asked them for the levels, and without without the without the right to have my levels, I couldn't get an expert witness because no expert witness could obviously comment comment because he didn't have the the, the levels. Because there is a just <coughs> to clarify, there is a level below which it's considered so low it would incorporate some possibility of contamination, yeah. i.e. that there might be some faint trace of a metabolite of cocaine that could show up in your system. But because it's below a threshold, it's so low, so yeah. insignificant, that you could have picked it up from doing that yeah. off, a, off a surface or in a, in a loo somewhere or wherever or off an associate. That is, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a given, isn't that, it? That's why, uh, that's why the BHA operator threshold, it's mm. 150 nanograms per 100 millilitres of urine in a urine sample. And um, uh, anything under 150 nanograms, the BHA doesn't, they don't, uh, they don't 
take any action. No. They just put write it off as a false positive. So it could conceivably have been <clears throat> that your level was below that threshold. Yeah, well, that's the, what you were assuming. Yeah, well, the hair test would strongly suggest that. Um, the two hair tests would mm. pretty much would say that. that. Yeah, they would support it. But, but, but without the without the evidence. Yeah, without the evidence of the of the levels and without. I couldn't get an expert witness. You couldn't get yeah. an expert witness in France. Yeah. So your hearing essentially had no chance in yeah, France. Yeah, I had no chance. I had no chance without, without, uh, without being given my levels. I had no chance to prove my innocence, really. So you sort of take it as read that France is a no, and this yeah. isn't going to happen, and yeah. so it was proved, and they kicked out yeah. any any possibility of an <clears> appeal. So then your hopes rest with the BHA and your hopes rest with the BHA not reciprocating yeah. the decision of, of France Gallo. You know that's going to be difficult, but you're offered a faint sniff of a possibility. Yeah, exactly. I was always told, look, the best chance of winning is if your best chance of winning is not going to be in France, it's going to be in England when we bring the case back. And um, Jerry Hill, Jerry Hill, the doctor from the BHA, he believes I haven't, I've never touched cocaine. Uh, Matt Chapman, you know... Uh, Paul Struthers, you know, the Jockeys Association, they all, you know, the BHA actually, there's two cases uh, where jockeys have to abide by hair testing every three months to prove that they're, they haven't been taking this and they haven't been taking drugs, basically. So with these hair tests, the BHA, you know, they, they, they know I haven't taken the drugs because mm -hmm. they support hair testing mm -hmm. because they use it on these two jockeys. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we brought back to the BHA. The BHA, um, <clears throat> they said, at worst, they were going to take a neutral stance. In other words, they were going to sit in the fence 50-50. Um, they, they could have supported it. And the week leading up to the hearing, um, we had... Uh, it, it was a letter from... Yeah, cause so just, just to clarify, so your case goes to an independent appeals yeah. tribunal, essentially. Yeah. So the BHA can either choose to oppose your, your <laughs> application for non-reciprocity. They can support it or they can remain on the fence. Yeah, yeah. And, <clears throat> and the BHA, as far as we knew, as far as uh, the Jockeys Association knew, I knew, at worst they were going to sit in the fence. But they were leaning towards supporting my application. Um, and we found out... We found out the afternoon at three o'clock before the hearing, the day before the hearing, that actually the BHA, they're not going to support it. They're not going to sit in the fence. They're actually going to oppose it. You know, because they'd taken legal counsel yeah. just the previous week, yeah. and legal counsel had said to them, "You must reciprocate France Gallo's ban." How does that make you feel? Uh, very disappointed. Very disappointed in France, uh, or in in the BHA, in France, um, like. Like, I know I'm 100% innocent, and I'm getting banned from now until the middle of July. Like, it's it's the whole season gone. Uh, there's only, what, three months of the flat season left after that, you know? It's uh, it's just uh, it's very disappointing. How much do you think it's cost you personally? Um, I know a lot of people do come back from bans and this, that and the other, but at this point in my career, I was, I was first year in England, um, I was trying to get going. David O'Mara, David Barron, John Quinn, all good supporters of me. Um, I, I just think it was a crucial stage in my career, and obviously I didn't need any of this uh, happening, you know. Um, yeah, I think it has definitely affected me, and um, hopefully I can get back, and, you know, I'll definitely be 
definitely be sticking my mind to a lot of hard work now for the summer and trying to get back in July. Is there anything you can do now or is this the end of the road in terms of fighting this? Um, we have a chance. I think there's a think there's a possibility that the BHA might might backdate the ban because I was in India and I, I, I did ride in Ireland the last couple of weeks but my main, you know, I had a contract in India, I was out there for a month. As soon as the French ban was imposed, that contract stopped and I, I took a couple of rides in Dundalk of a Friday. But um, I think if, if, if even, obviously it, it's, it's no great help, but if even they backdated it to November 22nd, it would be something at least, you know. Because that would bring you back a month. Yeah. Month, yeah. up, six weeks or so. Yeah. So I, you'd be able to ride end of exactly. May rather than wait till July. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't think I don't I, I th don't think there's much now we can do. I think I think um, I think we we can do a few little things. We can apply to um, the Irish Horse Racing Board and um, see if you can get a license just to ride in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. And have you had any feedback from them? Um, no, I haven't had any feedback from them yet. Um, Paul and the Jockeys Association is working towards that now at the minute, but. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not good. Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel, Dubai. I'm rejoined by David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, and trainer Dan Skelton, who was uh, so enlightening earlier on in the programme. And we are all joined by the chief executive of the National Association of Racing Staff. NARS is the acronym George McGrath. And George recently caused something of a stir by publishing what he described as a spoof 12-question quiz on the back page of the National Association of Racing Staff Christmas newsletter, highlighting incidents of... Um, various differing degrees of malpractice in racing yards around the country and not every trainer let's put it this way was particularly pleased that these had had been highlighted uh, George is with us now George good morning thank you very much for coming and joining us on luck on Sunday thanks for having me uh, not at all but we talked about this a little bit last week so we'll talk about it a bit more extensively now what was the thinking behind the NAS 12 days of Christmas quiz uh, it was basically born out of a bit of frustration at dealing with those sort of issues on a, a semi-regular basis throughout the year. Um, so there was an element of frustration there, but there was also an aspect of it where I wanted my members to understand what it is we actually do for them. And some of them will have identified with various um, questions within that quiz and thought, actually, I can relate to that. I think if I had my time back again, I probably wouldn't do it in a quiz, certainly not in that format. I think with hindsight, it was probably a little bit too provocative, and I think I probably offended and upset uh, a great deal of trainers who actually do a very good job for their staff. Was it because you, you now feel that stylistically a quiz, a spoof, something that people might associate with fun and lightheartedness, wasn't the right forum in which to express what are quite serious concerns about bad practice in the industry. Exactly. Again, if I had my time back, I'd do it in a different form. And actually, earlier on in the newsletter, there is a pie chart which demonstrates the percentages and breakdown of what we deal with on a sort of daily, monthly, yearly basis. And that probably would have been a better format for it. Um, so time back again, wouldn't do a spoof quiz, but um, it certainly has got a lot of uh, attention. And if you didn't know about NARS beforehand, you probably know about it now. So on that metric, you're successful. 
On that metric, yeah, but again, it, it wasn't the correct format in, in which to go about it, and it's uh, obviously fractured the relationship between ours, myself, Rupert Arnold, DNTF, and that's going to take some time to rebuild, which is a regret I have, because we've worked very well over the last five or six years. We've come a long way forward in the way staff are treated, respected, remunerated, etc., etc. It's only last year that we were able to bring in a 40-hour working week, uh, something that hadn't previously been done in racing before, and we could only do that with the cooperation of the NTF and I think no matter what you say about either organisation or either chief executive we are absolutely better working together than we are working uh, against each other. So can you carry on then? Can you carry on in your position given Uh, what you've just told me? I didn't realise that relations had broken down quite as badly as as you were saying, I know there's been a bit of disquiet about it. Can you carry on, do you think? Uh, absolutely. So long as I've got the support and backing up my membership and the vast majority of them are supportive, although some of them did say when I read that I did actually wince and I thought, Ooh, you know, that probably wasn't the best way to go about it and I would concede that point. Um, I think myself and Rupert Arnold, uh, given an hour or two in, in a room, could uh, uh, openly talk about this and we'd probably be okay and we could rebuild that relationship, albeit it will take some time. But it's not completely broken. You don't break something that you've worked hard to nourish uh, for five or six years and then just throw it all away. So these are some of the points that you raised, and they're important points, notwithstanding the, the, the methodology. Um, For example, name the trainer that thinks part-time members of staff are not entitled to receive pool money. Name the trainer who believes he's above the law by refusing to pay for work completed. And and on it goes. Name the trainer whose secretary gets four times the pool money that the staff receive, number eight. And the most serious uh, allegation here, name the trainer who was arrested for assaulting a, a female member of staff. How emblematic do you think these incidents are of the horse racing workplace? How representative are they of the workplace as a whole? I think as a whole, you you can't really judge it just like that. Each question would have a different sort of percentage and a different uh, relativity to the workplace. The point you made about part-time members of staff is actually quite a good one because a lot of part-time members of staff don't realise that they are actually entitled to a holiday and a share of uh, pool money. Equally, some of the trainers uh, that we get in touch with are also unaware of this and they go, well, I don't give my part-time members of staff holiday pay because I didn't think I had to. So it's relevant in different ways. The last one that you point out about the trainer that assaulted a female member of staff, uh, I think as has been reported in the Racing Post, um, that's, it's a, they're all real live events, but that would not be emblematic of racing as a whole, and it was probably a, a poor example to put out there, all bite it is, it's genuine and it's real and it happened. So again, there's a, you're expressing an awful lot of remorse, George, but on the other hand, there's an awful lot of serious issues that you, you want to highlight. What is, what is the most pressing issue for NARS at the moment as regards stable staff? I would say the pressure that they're under, um, the hours that they're working, and a perceived lack of respect at times. I say perceived because when you actually talk to racing officials, people, racehorse trainers, uh, people at the races, the BHA, there's a lot of respect out there for staff and for the job they do, and I think ITV have been very good in highlighting that as well. But the staff themselves don't always recognise that respect. And I think we, as an industry, have to understand that we are better together. Staff can't do without trainers. Trainers can't do without staff. 
Um, and I think that's probably something I want to get out there as well. So you're, you're attempting to build bridges now, having burned the bridges quite well. You're now attempting to build the bridge. And you talk a lot about pool money. And looking at the NARS website, pool money is clearly something that you feel very strongly about. For those who don't know what pool money is, Dan might be able to explain. It's, it's 5%, essentially, isn't it, of prize money that is then shared out, distributed amongst your, your stable staff. That's the way you're supposed to properly administer pool money, right? Well, actually, I'm not at all. I've got nothing to do with pool money. There is a, uh, there is a, f- I think there's a forum dis- uh, agreed amongst all staff mm-hmm. that this is how it's going to be done. I have nothing to do with it. So it goes straight. So the from pool money comes in, yeah, uh, from um, Weatherby's, and it goes into the trainer's account because where else can it go? And then it is distributed by the trainer to the staff on an agreed basis within that staff group. I have nothing to do with it. I have to sign a piece of paper to say it's received. And then that is it. I have nothing more to do with it. Luck on Sunday. Proudly sponsored by Albasti at Cruel Dubai. You've been listening to the Luck on Sunday podcast, the weekly digest of the best bits from Luck on Sunday, the programme that brings you the best guests and insights from around the racing world.